these people are taller than I am. Everybody on this planet is taller than I am. <laughs> My name is Blanche, and I am a member of a worldwide fellowship known as Al-Anon. Hi. I have been in reluctant recovery since July 7th, 1964. But I've been addicted to mind-altering, mood-changing men ever since I can remember. Coming up on 27 years makes me a survivor, not a savior, and I need to say that for my own benefit. Because <laughs> I have to remember it right regularly. I do thank you so much for letting me come this weekend for this beautiful city, for this beautiful hotel, for the delicious food, for the warm hospitality. I was uh, privileged to be here seven years ago at this very same convention, and um, they wait a while, of course, before they have the same people back, and they should. But I had remembered it as one of my favorites. I am privileged to share Al-Anon in a great many places. And uh, there are some that shall be nameless that I hope God does not require me to return to. <laughs> but I was delighted when I had the call to come back here because it is my privilege to know people in the program all over the United States and Canada. No place on the map is just a place on the map anymore. And so I have fretted with you through your drought and rejoiced with you in your rain. And I, I know that whatever's going on, wherever it is, I know people there. Uh, some years ago, well, you, you know enough about Texas. This won't surprise you or disillusion you. You don't have any illusions, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> the New England senators had voted against offshore drilling. And this upset the oil companies in Texas, and cars began to sport bumper stickers that said, let the Yankee bastards freeze in the dark. <laughs> and my first thought was, I know those people. I don't want them to be cold, <laughs> you know. This is uh, one of the bonuses of the program. Besides, I'm really very stodgy. I listen to Ben Lloyd talk, and she always stirs my heart, and I've never been in a honky-tonk. I mean, what can I tell you, you know? I uh, have more degrees than I had since, and I've <laughs> I haven't hit me one since the third grade, and I'm just real thick in the mud, but Southern Californians are good for me, because you are not stodgy. <laughs> you uh, have a a joy in living that I find only in southern Louisiana. The the Cajuns have this too, you know, the joie de vivre. I don't speak French, but I think that's what they call it. And I think it is charming and heartwarming. And I'm so glad I'm here. It is a good weekend for a convention, a time for rebirth and renewal and, and new beginnings. Something else I always notice about Californians is how athletic you are. Uh, I feel terribly guilty and inferior about that because these people are out jogging, you know, I see you doing all these outdoorsy things and <laughs> when I get the urge to exercise, I lie down until the urge goes away. I, <laughs> For years I commented that pushing 60 was exercise enough and I have pushed beyond it and <laughs> I'll have to find some other line to use in that kind of description, but I get most of my exercise sprinting through airports. I, 
I have been trying the last, oh, 15 years probably. I remember when I made the decision. I have been trying to be as vulnerable and as open as I know how when I'm behind the podium and sharing my program. Now, that means that I have to take a lot of risks because that makes me very emotionally vulnerable up here. But I have been told that that which does not come from the heart does not reach the heart. And I very much want to reach your hearts this afternoon, so I'm going to talk to you from mine. For years, I talked about the program, but not about me. And I told you what I thought, but not how I felt. And that, that, uh, some people listening can't tell the difference, but I wasn't reaping the benefits, the, the therapy that comes from sharing who I really am with you. So I will ask you to love me back, please, while I'm talking. And I'm here to participate in your conference. I'm not here to perform. It's hard to um, tell your story a different way each time. I have a reasonably good vocabulary, but I don't know how to reword it everywhere I go. And if you've heard tapes and you came anyway, then thank you. I'm awfully glad you're here. <laughs> and just think uh, that I needed to tell it, you know, whatever. I uh, also use notes when I talk. I never talk five minutes without notes. If you have a problem with that, I suggest you call your sponsor and discuss acceptance. <laughs> I think it comes from all those years when I was teaching school and having lesson plans. I hear a lot of people that I wish did have notes when they were talking. <laughs> and believe me, if you could hear me without them, you'd be glad that I used them. Besides, and I know how pious this sounds, but it happens to be true, I would rather you leave here thinking what a great program than what a great speaker. I came into Al-Anon, kicking, screaming, clutching my halo, wrapping my robes of righteousness about me, and telling everyone who would listen that I was fine, thank you. I had not done the drinking, I did not need the therapy. <laughs> I am so glad that God led me to a group of people who were practicing the principles of Al-Anon. I thought a lot about that too, Vanoi, while you were talking, because she and I both grew up in West Texas, which is a hotbed of <laughs> enthusiastic program people, strong, enthusiastic people. God, I'm grateful for that, aren't you? And I hope that wherever you came in was just like that for you. And that's what she and I share, and the circumstances are just totally immaterial because our program is the same. What I know of the Al-Anon principles today, I know not because someone read them to me or told them to me, but because they were practiced lovingly and tenderly on me. These people loved me when I was unlovable. They forgave me when my behavior was pretty well unforgivable. I was condescending and patronizing, and I had gone by to help them out. <laughs> Can you believe that? And, uh, <laughs> and they loved me anyway. And they taught me a little bit about what Al-Anon is and is not. That it is not a ladies' auxiliary and not a stitch and bitch club. That it is not a coffee clatch. They were serious about getting well. We do have a lot of misconceptions that abound about what our program is. I'm sure you've run into some of them. I like to dispel rumors about this when I talk. One of them is that all alcoholics, without exception, are either handsome or beautiful. They are talented, sensitive, intelligent, and sexy. Have you heard that one? No argument? I never get any argument on that. <laughs> no, the myth I want to dispel is that they are inevitably married to dull, mousy people. 
If you believe that, you can forget it. <laughs> I think sometimes we need a little better public relations work because uh, in both fellowships there are myths that need dispelling. Another one is that during the drinking, the non-alcoholic spouse always stayed home knitting, you know, Priscilla Pureheart. And some of us did, and some of us did everything the alcoholic did, and we did it cold sober. So I think it's important that we not have misconceptions about each other this afternoon. And you may not have this trouble in Southern California, but we do in Texas, and I always try to mention it. And that is, there are well-meaning members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think they do not know any better, who refer to anyone in their family who is not alcoholic as an Alamon. Now, those people may be candidates for Alamon, but an Alamon is a member of an Alamon family group who attends meetings, has a sponsor, works the steps, reads the literature. And if you hear anyone else talking about Al-Anon, don't listen, because those people are uninformed. They're not carrying the message. They're spreading the disease. I also learned some things early on that Al-Anon is not, that we are not cookie bakers and coffee makers, and above all, we are not AA groupies, and we are not a therapeutic tool for the treatment of alcoholism, and nor do we claim to be. And Al-Anon does not promise to save marriages, only sanity. And happily ever after may not mean walking hand in hand into the sunset together. In my case, it did not. And happily ever after means recovery for me. So this is a program for me. The analogy I always use is that of my mother's illness and death. We were always close and I absolutely adored her. And the last six months of her life, she was in Florida, I was in Texas. And I flew home to see her, and on my last visit, which I knew would be my last visit, I thought I could not stand it. And I went out into the hall because I was crying, and a woman I have not seen before or since in the room across the hall beckoned to me. When I went in, she said, your mother's going to be all right. And I said, you don't understand, her illness is terminal. And she said, I didn't say she's going to get well, I said she's going to be all right. And my mother did not get well, and she has been all right ever since. Now, it's very much as if when I got to you, you had said to me, you're going to be all right. And if you had, I would have said, oh, you don't understand. I have a barely sober husband. And you would have said, oh, I didn't tell you you were going to have a sober husband. I said, you're going to be all right. Or I would have said, I have a very shaky, fragile marriage. And you would have said, I didn't say you were going to have a marriage, I said, you're going to be all right, because somehow that's what I heard, and I have been, you know, and better than that, I know that I will be. al literature tells us how to make an al talk. I have not memorized it in a year now, but I haven't. al talks can be, and too often are, merely a repetition of past and present sorrows. Sketching the background is important, and it has its place. But it's merely the foundation of the talk. The best talk, the one which helps most people to the highest degree, is the one which brings out just how the program works and just how the speaker follows it. A good talk may be divided into three parts, how sick I was, how well I am, and what helped me to get well. Of these three, the emphasis should be on what helped me to get well. I agree with Father Martin, who... uh, says often, when he's sitting out there and you're up here, he says, you're playing with my life. 
Don't tell me how sick you were without telling me how well you are. I had the privilege of being at a dinner party with him a few months ago, and I told him that I quote him everywhere I talk. And he said, which, which thing do you say? <laughs> and I told him that one, and he sort of repeated it with me. And I had his permission, of course, to say it. Well, I was born on my grandmother's farm in northeast Florida, near a little town called Lake City, in the year of our Lord, I won't say which one, because I have not only reached the point where I lie about my age, but I'm old enough to forget what I said that it was. I will just tell you I'm somewhere between Blue Lagoon and On Golden Pond. My family had been there for four generations. We were not tourists. <laughs> Tourist was a bad word. Anytime I behaved in a manner my mother considered inappropriate, she would say, don't act like a tourist. I'm a very good tourist when I go places now. <laughs> um, we lived in, a, in Jacksonville until I was, until I was ten. That's on the Georgia border. And I, uh, I have to tell you, it won't surprise you that I had a charming, intelligent, talented, sensitive, alcoholic father. He was also violent. I was not, thank God, ever sexually abused, but I was a badly battered child. And it was years before I could say that from behind a podium. And it needs saying because it is not that uncommon in alcoholic homes. And let me say quickly that it is not always the alcoholic who does the battering. But uh, it happened to be that way at my house. We lived in grinding poverty. This was during the Depression. I don't mean no luxuries. I mean not enough food for days on end. Inadequate clothing, inadequate shelter. Poverty has nothing to recommend it. It does not ennoble the human character. It is a debasing and a degrading way to live. I have to tell you because even in the area of the city where we could afford to live, Neighborhood children were not allowed to play with me. Looking back, I can imagine that their parents were understandably apprehensive about what went on at my house. But I didn't know that then as a little girl. And I could not have verbalized my feelings, but I know now what they were. I felt rejection and rage. And uh, like Vinoy, I had some problems with being vindictive. And I thought, I'll get back at them some way, somehow. And you know where I, I did it in school? I could beat the socks off every one of them, and I loved it. I relished it. I cherished every minute of it. And education became my way up and out. Because in school, I was as good as anybody and better than many. My parents were divorced when I was eight. A couple of years later, my mother married again, a man that, as it happened, didn't drink at all. We were not close, he and I, but we both loved my mother, and we had a bond of real affection between us. We had the necessities of life by then, but no luxuries, and college was considered a luxury. Besides, no one in my family had ever considered going. I'm the oldest of 21 first cousins from seven brothers and sisters, and I remind them sometimes at family reunions that I blazed the trail here. And <laughs> Of course I remind them. They might forget <laughs> However, it was it was all right. They were just a little mystified as to why I'd want to do it, especially since I wanted to go to Baylor University, which happens to be in Texas, and that's how I got to Texas. And my mother said, well, a couple of things you need to remember. One is that you'll have to pay for it. 
and knew that, of course. And the other, she said, um, if you go to school in Texas, make up your mind that you'll live out there the rest of your life. Because she said, you'll end up marrying a Texan and they don't transplant. She said, <laughs> and I told her I was going to do no such thing, but I did, and they don't, and I have, and so, you know. <clears throat> you know, of course, that Texas is a state of mind. We've never forgotten that we used to be a nation. And that's the kind of pride that we feel. That's true of the whole South. You know, it was once a nation. And that's the kind of pride that we feel. Um, my father-in-law, an ardent Texan, well, I don't know any other kind, he, uh, he said he reared his children never to ask a man where he was from, because if he's from Texas, he'll tell you, and if he's not, it's not nice to embarrass him. <laughs> In the elementary school where I work, I have kindergarten through 12th grade, and so one of the schools is elementary. When the children do the pledge to the flag every morning, they then turn and face the Texas flag and pledge allegiance to it. I don't think that happens other places, <laughs> you know. They say, I pledge allegiance to the Texas flag. I honor Texas, one and indivisible. It's a little shorter than the other one. When I first saw that, I thought, this is a bit much. And then I thought, hey, it's all right. Loyalty is not a bad thing, you know. <laughs> and so I can smile and understand when they have bumper stickers that say, on earth as it is in Texas. <laughs> It was inevitable that I marry an alcoholic, but I want you to know I tried not to. <laughs> I, I, I just decided that in order to escape what my mother had lived with, I wouldn't date anyone who drank. And I didn't, ever. I never was on a date with anyone who had a drink. And my husband did not drink at all when we married. Um, <laughs> it remains for you to explain to me years later that that really wasn't significant. You said drinking is only a symptom of his illness. And you said that it's as if he'd had tuberculosis and he had not yet started hemorrhaging. That that symptom had not yet manifested. Does that make sense to you? And that, of course, I found somebody. I think about it now. The Baylor campus at that time had about 3,500 people on it, and I guess half of them were young men. And, of course, I found the dysfunctional one. Of course I did. How could I have come untreated out of an alcoholic home and do anything else? But I tried. I learned later that we had matching illnesses, and we nourished each other's neuroses for a very long time. And when you told me sick people marry sick people and they rear sick children, I didn't want to believe you, but the evidence was there. We lived in Corpus Christi and in San Antonio, and then we moved to West Texas to my husband's hometown, Odessa. West Texas people are a breed apart. They don't know there's anything they can't do, and so they do it. And I have never lost my admiration for those people. I never got used to the sandstorms and the dust, but Lord, I love those people. Odessa and Midland are together pretty closely, and then there's not much else around for 150, 200 miles in any direction. So when we were in the program, we were really very close, because all we had out there was each other. My mother used to call it Odesolate, but not where anyone could hear her, of course. I know now, looking back, too, that before I found you, I still had slogans that I lived by. You later replaced them with better ones, but I bet you had some of these. One of them was, what will people think? Did you have that one? Uh-huh. Don't rock the boat. How about it's not that bad yet? Did you have that one? <laughs> Did you ever play Guess What I'm Mad About? 
Charles used to say that I could ask him a question, answer it myself, and go away mad. I did all the wrong things during the years that he drank, and I kept on doing them. They didn't work, but that didn't stop me. I had a cleaning woman a couple times a week. Boy, I've missed her. But this was back then, and uh, she liked to iron. And she liked football, so during football season she watched football while she ironed, and she never quite caught on to instant replay. And she would say, maybe this time he'll catch it. That's what I was like. You know, it had never worked before, but hey, maybe this time it would <laughs> work. And so I protected, and I lied, and I rescued, and I played let's pretend as diligently as he ever drank, and he was almost literally loved to death. And this can happen. I was obsessed with him as he was compelled to drink. I would like you to think that during those years I stayed with him out of love and loyalty, but I did not. And when I'm this far from home, that requires a little bit of explaining. I grew up on the Georgia and Alabama borders at a time when that strip of Florida was very much the deep south. The tourists went on down to south Florida, you know. And, and at least in my generation, we got a very specific kind of upbringing. We were expected to flash our dimples and flutter our eyelashes and swish our skirts, but it was understood that we were made of steel and we could cope. I was brought up on the term steel magnolias long before I thought of the movie of it, you know. Uh, we didn't air our dirty linen in public, and you didn't live with a man and criticize him to other people. Now, not all the things I, I, I was taught were wrong, but some of them were rather incomplete. For instance, I was taught you keep the men happy and everything else falls into place. Well, now, there's nothing wrong with that if they had just said you don't give up big chunks of your own personhood to do this. But we didn't know that then. And I have friends today who think I got overtrained. <laughs> I just really slip into that at odd moments. It, <laughs> it was a phrase that my grandmother used. She had a firm house, and it was weathered wood before weathered wood was in. And she said she might be too, too poor to paint, but she was too proud to whitewash. I grew up with cloth napkins that were patched. You know, that, that kind of poverty and thinking. So, of course, I stayed. And my thinking was, I'll just try harder. There was a Charlie Down cartoon that illustrates this so well that I usually use it as the example. He's helping his little sister with long division. And Sally says, how many times will 24 go into 12? And Charlie Down says, 24 won't go into 12. And she says, it will if you push. That was my thinking. I got to you and you said, we don't try to force solutions. But that's a real symptom of a candidate for Al-Anon, is this drive to fix it. You see, I thought that I had had a most inauspicious beginning, and I did. And I had attended an expensive private university, and I had paid for it myself. And I had married the man I wanted, who was brilliant and handsome and could be charming. And I had children that I wanted when I wanted them. And I'll try to convince you in a few minutes that they're altogether remarkable. And I did work that I loved. And I had no understanding of nor tolerance for people who messed up their lives. If I could cope, you know, by golly, anybody could. I can't tell you how many times my sponsor has said, repeat after me, we are not morally superior to sick people. Over and over and over until I finally heard her. 
But before then, I still did a few things right. I never thought of Charles as a drunk. I never called him that. I was married to a very fine man who drank too much, who had what my Irish grandmother called the failing. <laughs> and at some level, I knew he was sick. At least I knew he would not be that way if he could help himself. And I had a God whom I worshipped and served, not God as I understand him today. But maybe in another 27 years, my understanding of God will be deeper and broader and more real. I hope so. I had a doctor who was Alamon before I got to you, and I say that because this was the man who said to me, you have to do what is necessary for your sanity and your serenity regardless. He gave me permission to take care of myself, at least to some extent. It was he who suggested I return to teaching. I had taught school before my children were born, and I stayed home with them for 12 years because I wanted to, and I'm grateful that I could, and I loved doing it. They will tell you it was one long bloodbath and they are messed up beyond belief, but I don't think so. <laughs> he thought I might go back to teaching. I used to tell my students that they were a doctor's prescription. He literally wrote it on, on a prescription pad. Now, I'm not an impulsive person. I'm not even very spontaneous, you know. I mean, I have worked my way up to flexible, but I'll never make frivolous. And... <laughs> So I thought about this a while, and it was a year before I decided, all right, maybe I'll do this. And the year before we found you, I returned to teaching, and for many years I taught 11th grade English in a very fine, very affluent high school. Now, there are people who think that 150 17-year-olds every day don't constitute therapy. There have been those who suggested that if you weren't already sick, that might do it. I never talked without saying, don't criticize kids to me. And as gently as I know how, I want to tell you that I think I know more of them than you do. I have collected several thousand through the years. And I know a number of them who have trouble growing up, but my world is full of people who have trouble growing up. And they have indeed been therapeutic for me. It wasn't one long honeymoon, you know. There were days when I wished for retroactive birth control, but <laughs> not every day. Intermittently now, I teach a semester or so in a community college, and it's not, it's not that different, really. This is about how we were when we got to you. I respected Charles then, and I still do, for the fact that he never stopped trying to find an answer. He went through ministers and lay counselors and medical doctors and both our local psychiatrists pretty quickly, and we never suspected alcoholism. We just knew something was terribly wrong. But he drank at home. So he didn't have hospitalization or arrests. And when he used to make talks, he would say, that's how you raise a crop of Alanons and Alatines, is to drink at home. <laughs> he used to tell people he had rump-sprung rump three sofas, passing out on them. That was pretty much the truth, too. Finally, one of his friends suggested a counselor, a woman who lived in Odessa then, who did family counseling. Strangest lady. I mean, she really was. Uh, it'll tell you something about her when I tell you his first appointment was at 12.30 a.m. And it'll tell you something about him when I tell you he was there. You know, he kept it. <laughs> he had been seeing her for about six weeks since she called me. I'm sure there are moments in your life that are so lucid and so graced that you remember every detail. I remember the carpet, the curtains. I was still home from school for the Christmas holidays. It was January of 1964. And she told me her name, which I recognized, of course, and she said, I have been talking with your husband, as you know, 
I think he's an alcoholic and this is a family illness. I need to talk to you too. And all of my deep south upbringing went out the window and I said, you're out of your mind and hung up. Now, I was reared that if you disagree with somebody, you are kind but cool. And I wasn't either of those words in any of their meanings. But before I could leave the room, the phone rang again. And when I picked it up, before I could say hello, she said, don't hang up. I know what you've been through. But see, she couldn't know. I hadn't told anybody. <laughs> and I sat there with that phone in my hand, and I thought all the tears had long since been shed. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. That was your first gift to me, was the freedom to cry. I cry any time I please now. Charles used to say I could cry reading telephone directories or menus. No, but television commercials are sometimes very moving, don't you think? I did go to see her, and it was she who sent us to you. And for six months, I went only to open meetings, and I carefully did not attend any where Charles was due to get a memento of sobriety. Do your groups give those out 30 days, 60 days? I didn't want to hear him say my name is Charles and I'm an alcoholic. If I didn't hear it, maybe I wouldn't have to look at it. And when anyone during those six months had the questionable judgment to invite me to Al-Anon, I was kind but cool. And I explained I had not done the drinking and I did not need the therapy. Thank you very much. July 4th weekend of that year, we went to San Antonio. I mentioned that we had lived there. Our babies were born there. Next to Austin, it's the most beautiful city in Texas. If you get there, don't miss it. And uh, we always went back every chance we got, and we went back to see friends. And Charles got drunk, and he says, I must never, never call it a slip. It was a carefully planned drunk. I know now that it wasn't the longest one, you know, or the worst one, and that I wasn't surprised. I didn't expect him to stop drinking. Don't you know that attitude helped him a lot? To his credit, he never drove, drunk or hungover. And when we started back to West Texas, he said, I'm going to have to tell... My group about this next week, he said, I'm due to get a six-month chip. And in my appalling ignorance, I said, I won't tell anybody. And he had to explain to me that that wasn't the name of the game. Now, I have to tell you that to make this point. We had been married 14 years at that time. And this man had never once said to me, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I made a mistake. And he was, in essence, going to go down there and say it to some people he had known six months. And I was furious. You know, I was enraged. So I decided that I would go take another look at them. And I used to reach this point in my story and say, I don't know why the invitation to attend Al-Anon that came at that time reached me when so many others had not. Well, I had done three, I think, very thorough and comprehensive fourth and fifth steps through these years. And with the very first one, God revealed to me more than I was interested in knowing about myself. And one of the insights I wish I didn't have to tell you was that I could hear this woman because she was somebody I thought was as good as I was. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, it takes what it takes. And God sent me the only person I could have heard. And she had everything I considered important. She had beauty and breathing and brains and education and status and money and prestige. She still has everything I consider important. It's just a very different list this afternoon. And she became my first sponsor. And I do not understand the kind of ego that undertakes this marvelous spiritual journey, unguided and undirected. And if I had a second hour to talk to you, I would talk about sponsorship. Eleven years later, she moved away, and I got another one. And I do not trust people who talk all over the United States and Canada and have no home group and no sponsor. 
we have no place for gurus in our fellowship. I'm privileged and permitted to tell you that my sponsor's name is Donna Lancaster, and uh, she lives in Irving, and I will give you her address and phone number if you want to check up on me, <laughs> because I wouldn't try to make it without a sponsor. My sponsor, by the way, was born with no legs. It's very difficult for me to explain to her how unfair life is to me sometimes. <laughs> and both of these women never told me to shut up and sit down. I would not have been patronized, and I would not have been yelled at. They were gentle and firm. And, for instance, with Donna, sometimes she says, you know, Blanche, when I'm trying to tell someone what a rough time I'm having, I really have to listen for self-pity. Now, she does that when I'm telling her what a rough time I'm having, <laughs> and I can handle that. And uh, Lord knows I wouldn't have wanted to try it without her hand to hold. We have a pamphlet that's entitled Living with Sobriety, in which it is written, while sobriety can be a welcome miracle, it does not guarantee happiness. And we didn't come in on any kind of pink cloud, and we had no euphoria. The first two years we were with you were worse than anything we had ever had drinking. Charles was stark raving sober, and he was very much aware of all of my defects of character. He was no longer held back by guilt from mentioning them, you know, loudly and clearly and frequently. <laughs> I know that sobriety is essential, but it is not enough. That overlay of fantasy was so hard for me to give up. I have to tell you that I married considerably above myself. He used to say I shouldn't say that. I don't know any other way to say it. I married into a fine old family that had had a great deal of money and still had a great deal of prestige, and there was nobody not allowed to play with me anymore. All that mattered to me. And I was so afraid if I came down here with you people, you know, I'd lose that. It was, I thought... I had prayed for help, but I thought God was showing very poor taste, you know. This wasn't at all what I had in mind. I was, of course, in bad shape, aren't we all, when we get here. I was emotionally so frozen. It's as if, now I didn't verbalize this during those sickest years, but it's as if I thought that the pain of watching someone I loved with every cell of my being destroying himself was more pain than I could handle. And so... It's as if I thought that, that feelings had valves, and I would turn off the one marked self-pity. I would turn off the one marked anger, the one marked resentment. What I didn't know was there's one valve, and it's marked feelings. And so when I got to you, you literally loved me back to life. You loved me until I could love myself, and you kept right on. And you, uh, you know, of course, that there's pain when something that has been frozen begins to thaw. And for years when I hurt in a new place, it would be some little frozen pocket that I hadn't found yet. I haven't had any of those in a very long time. I had a lot of defenses. I know now that we build those because we need them and because they work for us. And I no longer batter at people's defenses. I used to do that, you know. Let me in. I want to be your friend. That's kind of an emotional rape. I don't do that anymore. What I have learned is that when someone gets to us clad in armor, with a sword and a shield, you know, both defensive and hostile. Maybe if he looks out from the chink in the armor and we are warm and loving and friendly enough, and he knows the natives are friendly, then eventually he's willing to put down the sword and in time put down the shield. At least that's the way it happened with me. I had a lot of barriers 
to present my hearing you, but I don't have time to tell you about them. I'll mention one very briefly. I was a real intellectual snob, and I'm not intellectual, I'm intelligent. There's a difference. I'm not brilliant. Uh, I'm well read. I'm not a scholar. I didn't know the difference then. This had been my salvation, and so it was extremely important to me. And I used to think that if you couldn't tell me something in beautifully lucid and precise English, you need not bother. You hardly had anything to teach me. And when I think of the wisdom I have heard <laughs> and the kinds of English in which I have heard it over these years, I am so grateful my sponsor said, <laughs> Blanche, don't block any channels through which God might reach you. The first man that came into our Almond group said no woman could teach him anything. And oh, I said, you've just eliminated half the human race through which God might reach you. <laughs> And I know people who can't hear anyone of another race or religious background or ethnic upbringing or geographical location or uh, age. And I tried very hard today not to block the channels. That means I have to listen to people I don't like because he talks to me through them too. That's unfair. Now, don't you think so? <laughs> that was just one of the barriers. Anyway, I began to hear the program, and not from one person, of course, and not all at once. But I began to hear, do you realize you're sick too? Now let me tell you that 27 years ago, alcoholism was not trendy, okay? It wasn't the end thing to be alcoholic. There were not treatment centers on every corner because insurance would not pay for it. And there were not announcements every 30 minutes on television enlightening people as to this problem. There was a terrible stigma attached. And you didn't tell anybody. It was uh, it's still very, very shameful. I'm a school counselor, and I was working with a first grader a few years ago. Darling little boy, black eyes, black hair, Mexican-American. And we'd been sitting out on the playground. I don't always work in my office with the little ones. And when I got ready to take him back to his class, he said, Did you notice my teacher's not there today? And I said, Yes. And he said, She's sick. I said, Yes. He said, They sent another teacher. I said, They sure did. And he said, When I'm sick, they don't send another little boy. Oh, and I thought, Lord, how many times I would have sent somebody to do it for me if I could have. And essentially you said that to me. No one else can do this for you. No one can recover for you. No one can learn for you. And when you told me that we don't hear the answer until we ask the question, I began to realize that it must be hard to talk to someone who already has all the answers, and I certainly thought I did. So my sponsor said, you're going to have to unlearn some things. Well-meaning people have taught you some things that just aren't true. You'll have to give up your old ideas. She said, God can only fill an empty vessel. She said, you can't put new wine in old bottles. And so I tried to unlearn. There were dozens of things I have time to mention, only a few. One of them I had been taught, and I'll bet you were too, was that God helps those who help themselves. He does not, you know. He helps those who ask. And the times I needed him most desperately, I could not have helped myself if my life had depended on it, and it very nearly did. God helps those who ask. And I was brought up being taught that mature people stand on their own two feet and they don't ask for help. They solve their own problems. Did you get that one? Oh, I learned that one well. And my group kept saying, no, no, babies are dependent. They'll die without us. 
adolescents are independent. You know, I'll do it myself. It's a phase they must go through. But mature adults are very happily interdependent. I am not talking about a sick, clinging neediness. I'm talking about a normal reliance on other human beings and the recognition that we can't do it all ourselves. I know that some pain is necessary for my spiritual education, but you taught me that misery is optional, and I do not opt to be miserable anymore. If you could look at my long-distance charges, you would know that I learned to ask for help. In fact, some of you know it very personally, because if I can't make it through the night in Texas, California is still awake. <laughs> Pat says, I only love her for her time zone. <laughs> this is not true. <laughs> I don't have to die on every cross today. I was taught in you where to put everyone else first. Did you get that one? And um, that'll kill you, you know. That, that will just destroy you. I'm not talking about me first, but I'm talking about my turn. At least I learned to take that. And I have a sponsor today who says that when I'm facing a challenging or difficult situation, there are two questions I must ask. And one of them is, get this, what is in my best interest? Can you believe that? I mean, you can't be a martyr and ask questions like that. And I had suffered so nobly all those years. <laughs> she said that I do not have to like the situation, that it is imperative that I like myself in it. So the second question I must ask is what will enable me to like myself later. And knowing that got me through a very painful divorce a few years ago. I would not change one word I said or one thing I did. Well, that's a good feeling. And I have you to thank for that. And something else I was taught and I've had to unlearn was that you never say no in Al-Anon. Now, I know this sounds like heresy, but I have to say no more than I can say yes. Or when I, came, when, I, when I come to you, I would have nothing in my bucket. You know, it would be empty. Every time that phone rings, it is not God calling. And I believe I can get guidance on that as I do everything else. Oh, and I was taught what you don't know won't hurt you. What I didn't know nearly destroyed poor people. What you don't know can kill you. And so on and on I had to unlearn these things so that I could hear what you had to tell me. And I fell in love with this program. Settle for a spiritual band-aid. I didn't want to settle for crumbs falling when I knew there was a banquet spread. And so I began to listen while you told me about spiritual laws that were far more exacting than the man-made ones that I had been living by. For instance, that the worst immorality is judgment. And I can tell you, as other people have said this weekend, that any time I get Terribly judgmental, God gives me that situation to handle. It isn't enough to make me stop, but it's enough to make me hear myself, at least. Anytime I say, well, I would never, I will. And soon, too. So I'm learning to hear that when I say it. Of course, I was taught to release this man. Release him, you said, with love. If you don't like the warts, let go of the frog, you told me. I didn't like the warts. I didn't like the person I had become. And even today, I sometimes have to withdraw emotionally for a while before I can release. And I sometimes release with anger before I can with love. And everything I've ever released in my life has claw marks all over it. You would recognize it if you saw it, but I'm better at it today than I used to be. 
That is a descriptive line that I've used for 20 years, I guess, in making talks. And at a Mississippi convention some months ago, they were selling T-shirts that said everything I've ever released in my life has claw marks all over it. Either I didn't originate it or they liked it. Either one will do, you know, so the message gets spread. And I learned that God could work directly through my husband and children and later on the people I sponsored. I didn't know that. I thought he had to come through me. I always told them God's will for their lives. I didn't even have to ask about it. That's a symptom, you know, of untreated alimonism. Rush in and rescue. <laughs> Today I can listen to your feelings without trying to fix you most of the time. Now I have to bite my tongue and sit on my hands, but I can do it. Because you said we don't give advice, and I thought, how can we help anybody if we don't give advice? And I learned that what I can do for you and you for me is that we can often help each other see what our available options are. See, when I got to you, I thought I had three options. I thought I could live with this man while we both tried to recover in our mutual programs. I could divorce him. I could have a close, warm, communicative marriage. Unfortunately, that third one was not one of my available options. And, of course, it's the one I opted for. And to this day, any time I am miserable, I have opted for something that is not an available option. And I need you to tell me what is available and, even more importantly, perhaps, what is not. And from you, I learned to respond rather than react. Then I mentioned if he opened the car door and the beer bottle fell out, I could tell by the sound of the car door closing in the driveway what kind of evening we would have. And my feelings depended on that. It's as if Charles woke every morning and said, good morning. It's as if I woke every morning and said to him, good morning, how do I feel today? Because it depended on him. If he got angry, I got angry. If he got depressed, I got depressed. I thought this meant we were close. And when you told me that that was emotional slavery, I was told with a phrase that I have used ever since. You said, you can take your sails out of his wind. And neither he nor anyone else need determine the direction in which you go. That was a real burden for him. He never asked for that. I just handed him my self-worth on a platter. And I said, here, what I think of me will depend on you. So I began to take the risk of being the person I am within the bounds of love and courtesy. I had a sponsor reminding me you cannot ride roughshod over other people and say, well, that's just how I am. But within these bounds, to be the person that I really am, and that you pay an emotional price for that. It cost me a marriage. It might not cost you that. But, hey, I was paying a much higher emotional price by pretending, by trying to find out what you need and be it every time I formed any kind of relationship of course, you pointed me to the source, and you said, people are the channel, and God is the source, and it's all right to love the channel. That's a good thing, because I tend toward hero worship, you know. The people I love can do no wrong, or if they did, they had a good reason. That's the way I figure it. I haven't asked God to remove that. I, I enjoy that. <laughs> and I, I am able to love the channels. If I can remember that if one channel shuts down, there will be another, because my source is inexhaustible, then I'm okay. I had to learn that... For instance, God is the source of my happiness, not other people. But I don't acquire squatter's rights on someone's life because I married it or gave birth to it. That was a freedom for my family, too. And I learned that that comes from me. And on and on, I didn't learn this all at once. 
I still don't have it all. I learned it slowly and painfully, incident by incident, through blood and sweat and tears, one 24 hours at a time. And there are some days when I think, what program? You know, God who? And when that happens, I call one of you and you will tell me what program and God who. Usually in the word God used with you. I wish you wouldn't do that. Do you have people do that to you? They say, well, as you've told me. And I think, don't do that to me. I don't want to hear that today. But I remember I try to, that I don't have to be perfect, that practice makes progress, and that recovery, like the illness, is progressive too. The weller we get, the weller we can get. English teachers are allowed to make up their own words. It's in our contract. I have given myself permission to have relapses, and it's a good thing because I have them regularly. My favorite one is a few years ago visiting my son in Dallas. Bright day. Beautiful morning, walking down the stairs outside his condo. I have had several kinds of arthritis since childhood, and the primary one is muscular. And I, my knee gave way, and I fell down the stairs. It was a very bad fall, and I was unconscious. He called the paramedics who came with an ambulance. I don't remember any of that. I came to as they were lifting me from the stretcher in the ambulance onto the gurney in the emergency room. In time to hear the emergency room nurse saying, Now just lay back and take deep breaths. And coming out of total oblivion, I said, honey, that is lie back. I will lie back. <laughs> I passed out again, but when I came to, I couldn't shut up. I said, you see, dear, you say it so many times every day, you really must learn to say it correctly. My son was putting his hands over his eyes. He was saying, now, she doesn't do this to total strangers usually. Really, she doesn't. <laughs> Fortunately, the nurse thought it was funny. Fortunately. <laughs> but I tell you to say that let my defenses get down, and I am by golly going to straighten out the world, and that is still there. <laughs> of course I talk the talk better than I walk the walk. Of course I do. And I walk the walk better than I feel the feeling, but I'm still the best man that I have ever had today. And what I'm learning, let me say this to you people, what I'm learning is just as new and scary to me as what you are learning after one year or two or five. The difference is that I've had a little longer to pick up the tools, and if I can't pick them up, one of you will hand them to me. But I still need a hand to hold while I look around corners, because the new things in our lives are scary regardless. Sometimes God leads me and sometimes he drives me. And sometimes I wish he wouldn't and sometimes I'm afraid he won't. And I see you people today come into this program and they just hit it running. And they learn more in one year than I did the first five. And I finally figured out why. You know, 27 years ago we didn't have us. Do you understand that? My sponsor had been in 13 months. I thought she knew everything. Nobody had five years or ten or fifteen. Nobody. And Al-Anon hadn't been around for twenty. And so although I'm a little envious that they have a library of literature waiting for them and scores and scores of people with experience, it was still exciting to be in on the beginnings too. Well, I've got to hurry. These children are fine today. Thank you. I think they are. Um, they have this thing about boundaries, and they don't let me know as much as they used to. <laughs> but I mean literally thank you. Our children were in Alateen for ten years each. 
they were very active. They did speaking, they were on state boards. Uh, we don't do well in our whole family about being spectators, you know. We tend to participate. <laughs> I have a friend who says, I see you still fling yourself headlong into life. Yes. I, and that's another thing I haven't asked God to remove. They came in when we had a preteen group, and they stayed until they were really too old for Alateen. There will be a special place in heaven, or I'm in California, an especially beneficial karma for the people who sponsor Alateen groups. God bless you. I love you. Wow. Do I ever. We have a son and a daughter. They both are married and divorced. When our daughter was planning her wedding some years ago, she... Uh, she said, now, there's no rule that says your attendant has to be a girl, and the person I want to stand up with me is my brother. Well, I told you I'm pretty stodgy, and uh, I opened my mouth to give him the benefit of my wisdom. <laughs> and if I could say anything, her brother said, hey, that sounds neat. I've never been a bride's person before. And the groom was saying, well, now I'm really closer to my sister than I am my brother. I can ask her to stand with me in the wedding party will be better balanced. <laughs> so we had a best woman and a man of honor. <laughs> yeah, see, you can clap. You're the ones who taught her. <laughs> in that subversive organizationality, you taught her to be the person she is <laughs> and that she had a right to be. It was a beautiful wedding. Of course, I cried as the mother of the bride is allowed to do. But I was thinking sobriety made this possible. I'm going to take the time to tell you a couple of dimensions added to our life because our children were in Alateen. Because Alateen is included in this weekend, and I like to do that when that happens. Our daughter was 17, and she was asked to serve cake at a wedding reception. First time she'd ever done that. Well, now let me back up and say, does our sort of communication, does it spoil you? Are you no good at small talk anymore, or did that just happen to me? I mean, they've quit inviting me to women's parties, because I think they're afraid I'll say something relevant, you know? <laughs> or ask a question, or whatever. I was going into the school building along about this time with one of my colleagues who said, How are you this morning? Well, see, I thought she wanted to know. <laughs> when you ask, you want to know. So I said, well, I'm really in a snit. I had a fight with my husband at breakfast, and I'm so mad I can't see straight. Well, she was embarrassed. I mean, she looked at the floor and the ceiling. I could have said that to any student I have. And he would have said, I know what you mean. You know, some days my old man's the same way. But anyway, my daughter said to the bride-to-be, uh, I don't know how to serve cake at a reception. And the bride said, there's nothing to it. All you do is you cut the cake, you hand it to the guest, you make a little small talk. <laughs> Now, I wasn't there, but Ellen says when she handed the first piece of cake for the first guest, she said, how are you handling your resentments today? <laughs> That's what Alateen did. <laughs> My son is 6'3". It seems to me he's always been that tall. Surely not. But I refuse to look up at him and shake my finger in his face so I would make him sit down. And one day when I was giving him the benefit of my wisdom, it was an ear-blistering lecture, actually. He sat there looking at me with his father's gentle blue eyes, and he said, Mother, don't. 
You're going to feel so bad when you're making amends for this late. <laughs> I recommend that you get your kids in the program. My daughter is a journalist. She's political editor for the St. Petersburg Times, which is a really plumb position in a very prestigious newspaper. Now, you don't know that if you're not in journalism, and I'm not, but she told me so. She makes three times the money I do, which wouldn't be hard when you're in public education. <laughs> she is a great comfort to me. I think my kids would adore me as I did my mother. That hasn't been the case. And you have taught me to, they will love me the way they can, you know, as much as they can. And I can accept that today. My son is a professional photographer in Dallas. He's very good. He has won two Clio's, and um, he was the first photographer ever to win two of them. He wasn't with an agency. This is an advertising award, about the best one you can get in this country. See, you're a captive audience. You're lucky I didn't bring home movies. <laughs> we date the people we meet, and he needs models. And before he got so grandiose that I had to go to a secretary to get to him, when I had time in the Dallas airport, he used to come visit me. When you leave Texas, you almost always go through Dallas first. We say that when you die before you go to heaven or hell, you'll go to Dallas first. And he would come out and sit a while with me, and he always had one of these gorgeous young things on his arm. They all weighed 36 pounds and had legs up to their armpits. I told him if I wanted to feel frumpy, I could stay home and iron. <laughs> I just need that. They have not had to drink or do drugs. I have reared two quintessential caretakers. My daughter says if you put her down in a room full of a thousand men all dressed just alike and there's one dysfunctional, she will find him. Why not? Her mother always did. I don't mean to imply that they have had no problems. They have had all the problems that people have who grow up with alcoholism. They do know that there's help and they have so far been willing to get it. I, this is so hard for me to say, I'll say it briefly. I know that there are ebbs and flows in all relationships, you know, parent, child, friends, uh, lovers, whoever. And my relationship with my son has been at an ebb the last two and a half years. And this is very painful for me. And if you run out of things to pray about, I would appreciate your prayers for the healing of that relationship. Now, I must tell you something that I'm afraid you'll hear is bad news. Please don't. It was what had to happen next for my recovery and for Charles. We lost our marriage for a variety of reasons that it would not be at all appropriate for me to go into behind the podium. But I can tell you that we tried to revive it. And it was like giving artificial respiration to a corpse. It was totally ineffective. You had told me that marriages made in sickness don't always survive health. But I thought maybe mine would be the exception. Because people who love us want to know, I always say, no, he didn't leave me for another woman. And no, I didn't show him out for another man. And no, he did not resume drinking. He would have been sober 24 years in July of 1988, but he died in April of that year. He had lung cancer, ocellum carcinoma, which is mercifully swift. I can't talk about his death yet. I was absolutely astonished at the intensity of my grief and loss 
because we had been divorced for several years by then. When I can, and when I've learned what I'm supposed to from it, I'll come tell you. But I can tell you about the divorce, and it took a while to be able to talk about that, that our recovery had taken us down different roads and in different directions, and something toxic seemed to happen when we related to other people that did not happen when we related to each other. And it had become a very destructive relationship, and we cared too much about each other to destroy each other. And we had to accept that for us, we could not gain any further recovery in the framework of a marriage that was sick beyond healing, that had been damaged beyond repair. It was not lack of love, God knows. But if you have lived this long and you don't know that love is not always enough, you haven't been paying attention. We released each other with dignity and respect. We really did to find new lives and new directions. We tried to remain friendly, but I would be lying if I told you we were friends. Friends share feelings. Friends joy in each other's presence. If we could have done that, we could have stayed married. We were not friends, but I'm trying to make clear that there was no villain. No one was wearing a black hat here. Unless you think this is some kind of storybook divorce, I will tell you that I was enraged to see people getting effortlessly from him what I had yearned for for 30 years. On my saner days, I could rejoice at that evidence of his recovery. But most of the time, I was just furious that it hadn't happened in time for us. Nobody wants divorce. That is not in anyone's game plan. I wanted us to grow old together, to watch our grandchildren playing, to put our teeth in the same glass on the nightstand. And yet, I was never more helpfully Alamon, and I never felt more direct guidance than when I decided that I, too, would go to any lengths to get well. Because you didn't turn loose of them for ten years each, these children were able to be mutually supportive. The weekend that I had asked Charles to move, our son flew out from Dallas and he alternated moving a piece of furniture to his father's apartment and then holding me while I cried. And then he would move something else to his father and he would sit on the sofa and hold me while I cried. And in August, no, in September of that year, the divorce was final in August. In September of that year, it was my daughter who called and said, I know this has been a difficult day for you. It was a day that would have been our 30th anniversary. Ending a long marriage is like an amputation. It may be essential for survival, but the agony is intense. And there is phantom pain where the relationship used to be. I'll always regret not the divorce, not one minute, but the necessity for it, as I would have regretted the necessity for an amputation. And you had said all those years, you don't back God into a corner and shake your finger in his face and say, why me? I mean, after all, why not me? But you say, what am I supposed to understand? And so that's what I ask him. And all the answers aren't in yet, but I understand a few things. And one of them is that I do not have to know what the future holds, because I know who holds the future. And that God and I are enough. That, hey, so my generation got this one. I'm a whole person without a man. And thank you, I earned that one. <laughs> but surprisingly, you know, I'm neither young nor beautiful, but there are always men. And I love men and enjoy this. But the men in my life today are there because we both want them to be. And not because one of us has a loose umbilical cord, you know, that we're trying to plug into the other one. 
people who love learning go back to school at times of stress. And so I began to investigate graduate schools. And of course I chose the longest, hardest master's program I could find, which is at the University of Texas in Austin. It was 54 hours and a thesis. <laughs> I was talking about this to my children and I said, three years. Do you know how old I'll be in three years if I go get a master's degree? And my son said, how old will you be in three years if you don't? <laughs> no one had saying it to me like that. It was very hard for me to pull up roots in West Texas, to leave my comfort zone where people could spell my name, to sell the house my kids grew up in. But the house was only brick and wood, and I could take the memories with me, and anywhere I live is God's house. Oh, you would have laughed to see me in graduate school. I kept wanting to teach the class. I mean, I had taught longer than any of them. I wanted to correct their grammar, too, but I don't do that when I'm conscious. And I did get a master's degree in counseling psychology and went to work part-time at our community college and then went to work at the little country school that I have mentioned to you. And intermittently, I teach a class in human sexuality at the community college. It has to be taught by a counselor. You would have loved listening to the interview while they asked your teens whether I was qualified to teach it. <laughs> I mean, why can you say you can't say you majored in it at college, although you and I know people who tried? It was great fun teaching the sex class. It was fun when I do it. Um, my children are embarrassed. They say they never intended their mother to be the Dr. Ruth of Austin. <laughs> but I can tell you that unlike the students in my English classes, the students in my sex classes never say, what are we studying this for? We'll never use this. Never. <laughs> they don't argue with the relevancy at all. <laughs> Switching from teaching to counseling was hard for me. Change is hard for me. And those are not the same relationships at all. And I learned that early on, uh, first week on the job in my little school, mother called her first grade boy who was having trouble on the bus, and she said, see what you can find out. I called him in, darling little boy, and I said, tell me what happened. And he says, those kids on the bus pester me. And I said, well, what did you do? Well, he said, I don't use dirty words. And I said, well, I'm certainly glad. What did you do? Reached over, got my tablet, tongue between the teeth. Very laboriously, he printed H-S-I-T. He said, I wrote that down. I said, uh-huh, what happened? Well, I showed it to them. I said, yes. And he said, they couldn't read it. Well, up till now, all is well. But I was like a fire horse hearing the bell. I said, darling, you didn't spell it right here. Let me show you this. I was crossing the T before I thought, what am I doing? I don't think they hired me for this. I've always hoped that when he got home that day, nobody said, what did you learn in school today? You've done what I asked you to. You loved me back. Thank you for that. I like to close with some lines from our Al-Anon literature. They say, today, this very moment, is all you're sure of. And that flashing instant who's going to join the past, even before you're aware of it. With this busy spin of time, the only safe way to make each moment count is to make Al-Anon responses habitual. You can't go wrong following Al-Anon's teachings. With them, there's no regret for yesterday. 
There's guidance for today. There's hope for tomorrow. And that's the wish with which I leave you on this beautiful Easter weekend in San Diego. I wish you no regret for yesterday and guidance for today. And, oh, I do wish you hope for tomorrow.